Bangers Ball. Welcome to the show. As always, I am your host, Jed Mayhew. Today on the show, we have Robbie Williamson, musician, composer, visual artist. I didn't get into it in the interview, but I was reminded afterwards that uh, the first time I think, well, maybe I'd met him before, but we the first ever ZigZag show when the band was just a two-piece was um, playing with Robbie's band, We Are The World, uh, for an event downtown at the Mocha Museum that was put on by Ryan Heffington, um, our friend. It was called Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Basically, it was like a big sort of dance art show that uh, happened downtown LA um, on the streets of LA, and they blocked down the streets, and we played, and then Robbie's band, We Are The World, came in on a flatbed truck and did their thing, and I don't know, it was fun, it was a long time ago, and it was probably the weirdest fucking show we ever played, and it was our first show, it's always it's only been downhill since then. I was driving around LA yesterday, and I was I was dressed like Matt Dillon's character from uh, "There's Something About Mary." It was for an acting exercise, and I was on uh, I was on my phone on I think I was on Santa Monica Boulevard. I was on the phone, and I got pulled over by a motorcycle cop, and I I was kind of still in character, so I decided I was going to lie to him. And he asked me to roll down my window, and before he said anything, I said, Hey, I'm on my way to an audition. He said, Ah, that's great. Give me your license. So he took my license, and he came back, and he said, You know you know why I stopped you? And I said, Uh, no, no idea. And I knew I was because I was on my phone. He said, Oh, you're looking at your phone. I said, Ah, sorry, sorry. I was looking at the map because I'm trying to get to this audition. I wasn't actually going to audition. I don't know why I kept lying and saying I was going to audition. But the guy gave me a warning, so he let me off. He said, you know, you take this warning and you can do whatever you want. You want to throw it in the trash, go for it. Just, you know, between you and me, just stay off your phone. Which I did for about two more lights before I looked at Instagram again. Anyways, let's talk to Robbie Williamson. Thanks for checking out the show. So, um, you're taking, okay, that's good. I like, I like the glasses off. You like to look in my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> we can connect better. And that way I can listen. In that case. Don't, no, 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 don't put the glasses back just on. Kidding. Keep them off. So I wanted to, I want to talk about, uh, Tacoma, Washington. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I find that place kind of a fascinating town in a sense of. Yeah. Like, it's a weird it's it never it never has taken off in any way. Right, it, it's, it's still untouched. Yeah, I used to think. It, I always think it's like a place. Like, man, maybe I should just fucking move to Tacoma. I think you would just hate it. Yeah, but I don't know you well enough. But I, I mean, it's uh, it's just depressing. It's very the economy sucks. Yeah, there's a lot of retarded people walking around. Like actually retarded people. Yeah. Yeah. Why? I don't know. I think there's a lot of like homes for, right? 
<laughs> disabled people there. That makes for a depressing downtown. Which isn't, I'm not like, whatever. But of course, still, yeah. if you go out of your house and every day you're just like, there's all these people walking around and you're like, where the fuck do I live? <laughs> I just always, I mean, I grew up outside of Portland, so it's kind of similar. I mean, I grew up in a trailer park outside of Portland, so very similar in yeah. the sense of just kind of a depressing, dark it's always cloudy. It's always kind of rainy. And Tacoma stinks, too. Yeah, it does. There's like a, there's like a paper mill or something there's there. A, yeah, some kind of wood paper mill. I forget what it is. But it, it's not as bad as it used to be. It used it's to, not as bad as it used to be at all. There's this saying called the Tacoma Aroma. Tacoma Aroma, yeah. That's yeah. what we would always say it's as sort we of drove a by there. sweet, kind of sweet poo smell. <laughs> I kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's like gasoline or something, or one of those. Yeah, gasoline like kind of yeah. gets your bowels moving when you smell it. Yeah, it's like one of those things where it's 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 gross, but you kind of you like it in a little ways. I guess kind of like Tacoma. Yeah, but it's it's an interesting place though because I I always just wonder why it didn't take off because, well, I mean you had like the Sonics are from there and the Whalers are from there and you kind of had these like really heavy. Yeah. Stompy garage bands from the sixties and and I think a lot of it also you had the the, the like the military base there. Mm -hmm. And so you kinda Fort had this Lewis. like Yeah. Fort Lewis. And you had this yeah. kind of like heavy rock scene there in the sixties and then it just But isn't it true that like there's always music scene music cities like that? They always need some sort of economy to to justify them right. blowing up. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I feel like I, I just don't know why Tacoma doesn't have an economy, though. They they have like they have cool museums, actually, and they have like a symphony and stuff now. But like when I lived there or when I lived in Seattle, there's just not a lot going on down there. We'd actually, go down and play shows. But you grew up there, right? Yeah, I grew up in Gig Harbor. Oh, wow. OK. Is, my, yeah. My godparents live in Gig Harbor. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But I spent a lot of time in Tacoma. Yeah. Especially when the community world started going. Do you know that club? No. It was like kind of the first all ages club it got going like 86 and everyone played there like everyone that you know the the scene the punk scene was so big then like dc stuff and right everyone would come through and play right yeah what bands were you seeing i mean i saw like scream and bad brains and adam's from dc so oh nice yeah, yeah. so many i think faith played there oh wow i mean everyone would come through i always i always well i love that faith void split yeah that's one of my favorite records but everyone always says like the void side is the side and the, the face side kind of that that void singer is kind of like yeah the shit i yeah. mean that voice is insane and and bubba's guitar playing on that stuff is fucking nuts i don't know bubba who's that he's the guitar player he he played in he played in void and then uh i think he lives down here now and he he lived in seattle for a while and i was he was dating a girl that I was like living in her basement in Seattle for a while. So I met him a bunch of times. Oh, nice. And his dad's like, uh, the, like the basketball, uh, correspondent for like USA Today or something like that. Hmm. Yeah. He's just like this crazy guitar player, dude. Remember that band Wool that came out of Scream? Yeah. With yeah. the Stahl brothers, I think. Pete yeah. Stahl. Yeah. Those guys were, would come through a lot too. Well, wasn't there a band from Tacoma called like Steel Wool too, or was that some... Steel Wool. Yeah, but I don't think they're from no, Tacoma. No, from Tacoma. I no. think they were from Seattle. Well, what was your family doing in Gig Harbor? I moved there when I was seven. My dad was a stockbroker for Merrill Lynch, so he got transferred there mm -hmm. to Gig Harbor. Um, yeah, that's how I ended up there. And what was it like growing up in Gig Harbor? Because when I would go there as a kid, 
we were right on the water and I would just go down there and like pick oysters off the yeah, seawall I mean, uh, and go Harvard clamming and amazing. Yeah. It was beautiful. amazing to grow up there. Yeah. And somehow I grew up in a generation of a lot of like when snowboarding was just starting going. So a lot of my friends were pro snowboarders and I was like an amateur skateboarder. The music scene was popping off. So it was like really exciting. Were you, were you guys like taking the bus or driving up to Seattle or anything to you? All the time. Yeah. We yeah. And where, where were you going up there? Like we had a, had a crew of skaters that I would skate with that were all sponsored by fallout. You know that shot? Yeah. I love fallout. Do, do you know Tim Hayes then? No, I don't he know. He took Tim over Hayes. years later and took over the shop but they didn't have the skate team anymore they didn't have because yeah. jacks that was like a skate thing too they were like the jacks gang or whatever those yeah. guys were from they were from like vancouver or they, something. i think they were from like sf in vancouver yeah not too many jacks in seattle that's right they were from sf as well and i remember that yeah because i met people in san francisco that were like f friends with the jacks guys but also there was a vancouver chapter yeah kind of like biker gangs or something yeah yeah, Fallout. It was like a record label and a skate shop and a record store at one point. Exactly. It was so cool. Yeah. They had, they had a really good team. So I would skate with those guys all the time. Awesome. Was it up on uh, on Denny there then? Yeah, it was on Denny on the hill. Yeah, Denny and like... Uh, right by the freeway. 15th or something, John or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, because Tim took it over, I want to say, in the late... 90s and it just became just a record store but it was still in the same location and still had he had great fucking records there you yeah, know who was the guy that owned it before <sighs> i can't remember i want to say ryan i have no Him idea and his wife ran it yeah i was behind, I, I missed all that stuff that was so it was before i got there but but i just remember hearing about it and 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 how uh you know how big skateboarding was a was a part of the music scene too then you know yeah and i feel like it's kind of coming back a little bit that way but but at that time that was like a big deal if you were into that if you were into skating you were into like yeah. punk if you were into yeah because thrasher was releasing that the tape series skate rock totally you know and there'd be like the faction and these bands that pro skaters are like steve caballero was in that band right yeah so it was just like a whole it yeah. seems like all the young kids that are skating now are like into the like heavy psych rock thing. Are they? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that scene at all anymore. Yeah, it, that, it, it's like like it's what kind down. of bands? Oh, like Earthless and these bands, you know. And and this guy that I know, Justin Figueroa, who's like a he's a big big time pro skater, and he plays in a band called Harsh Toke, and it's just like it's like very jammy, you know. They're like they're like jamming, you know, like a lot of guitar solos and stuff like that, you know. And it's like more like. Stoner rock or whatever yeah. you call it, you know. Yeah, it's true. Because whenever I see skate videos now, these dudes like have super long hair yeah. and they're just like baked and they're just raging. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it just morphed cool. into that. So okay, so then, so you're going up to Seattle and you're skating and 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 you're listening to music. So the first stuff you were listening to was like punk rock stuff then. Yeah. 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 And 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 like, did you decide that you wanted to play music around that time or? Yeah, I did. I started playing. I got a. Oh, I was playing drums since I was like seven, but just like playing with headphones to ACDC and stuff. And then uh, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I got a, I got a Jealous Again EP, Black Flag. Right. Yeah, I think my brother gave that to me. And right. And that kind of changed my life. You got to have somebody to give you those records. Yeah, you can't just I was so fortunate ones. to have an older brother that had good taste. I think I had the same thing where I was like, I was listening to Kiss one day, and then the next day somebody gave me like a Dead Kennedys tape or yeah. something, you know. And then it's just like this total like total 
change mind fuckery mm-hmm. of like oh it's still fast and loud but but it's like i can i can maybe aspire to this as opposed to like i'm not gonna like put on a bunch of makeup or something yeah you probably put that kiss record down for a while <laughs> yeah i think I, yeah i think I, I, then it was like dead kennedy's misfits and all that stuff yeah so did you start playing in bands then uh yeah i started um i well once i i think around 15 i started playing bass and then i started this band called my name with a bunch of my high school friends and we stayed together for like 10 years and put out like five records um was it on like a local like tacoma label or something it was not no we were on cz records oh wow cz okay yeah shit i gotta look that up man yeah check it out i will it was cool so uh yeah we just just started touring we did a bunch of tours with that band all that used to be the descendants fuck yeah yeah and they produced a few of our records um and yeah it was cool was it you so you're working with bill stevenson yeah he produced a did you go to record it in denver or where where was he like well, they Fort were, collins or some shit it was right when they switched from descendants to all so they were living in hermosa beach in like a storage thing uh-huh. so we went down there for the first time and recorded a few demos with them and then uh then they moved where did they move they moved to st louis oh really and we right outside of st louis wow and then we recorded a record there and then they moved to colorado and recorded a few there wow what was that like working with i mean were you like huge like descendants fans yeah totally huge De- descendants fans and then just i don't know even remember how he found out about us, but I remember one day I got a phone call from him and I was living at my mom's house. I was like 20. He was like, this is Bill Stevenson. I'm like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. And I was just really excited. Yeah. And then he asked us to tour with him. Yeah. And then after that, we started recording. And he just heard, how did he hear you guys? Just I'm from like to, a CZ thing or something or? Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> That's funny, man. My 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 buddy was like a he. I was I I liked the Descendants, but like I was kind of more like more into like metal and a little bit like more like hardcore stuff. But I I did love the Descendants, and I saw him play like later on. But my friend, like my best friend in high school, who uh, I met him, uh, he he was from like Bainbridge Island or Bremerton. He was from Bremerton, and uh, he was like one of these guys that was like very sensitive teenage boy mm-hmm. so he was really into descendants and he really he he really uh, uh saw himself in like milo and he would write letters to uh milo and then he wrote letters to bill stevenson and then bill stevenson would write him back and he would show me these letters <laughs> oh nice <laughs> teenage yeah that's what it was like uh when i got that jealous again record i wrote henry uh a letter and he wrote me back yeah and I still have it. It was like so cool. That's awesome. Yeah. What did you say to him in the letter? Just like I love your band. You know, like I think I asked him something about some song. Like I felt like that once in this one song, and blah blah blah. Yeah. It was cool. Well, I've been trying to get him to come on the on the <laughs> podcast, and I, I've written him a couple emails because he plays my band on his show every once in a while. Yeah. And he's like the fastest email responder. Oh, really? Like, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, hey, Henry, I'm curious if you'd, you know, be on the podcast. And like, as soon as I send it, I get this email back. It's like, hey, I'm on a boat in Antarctica. Wi-Fi connection's pretty poor here. I'll let you know here ASAP. (laughs) (laughs) He's a machine. Yeah, he's 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 obviously he's the same fucking guy, you know. As far as like, he gets it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I've been reading his. uh, 
his column in the LA Weekly sure. for a while. Yeah. Kind of disappoints me, actually. <laughs> kind of lost faith in the guy. <laughs> Why? I just think he's just, he's got a very middle of the road sort of establishment view on politics that's uh -huh. annoying to me. Uh huh. I would expect a little more from him. Right. Yeah. I haven't read it in like a while just because I stopped reading the LA Weekly. Yeah. Because I found just their music coverage to be so piss poor. The whole thing's pretty piss poor, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it's got a real, like, shitty, like, <laughs> just shit on the LA Weekly now. It's got a real shitty, like, 90s, like, burlesque covers all the time. Exactly. I was just going to say it. I didn't want to say it. <laughs> but it's like, fucking crazy. Wow, another tranny on the cover. Awesome. <laughs> it's not, yeah, it's just like, I don't even. Or I then they'll pick some random artist you've never heard of and said, the most important artist in 20 years from Los Angeles. You're like, who the fuck is this guy? Right. I know. It's fucking bizarre. And I, I just like, I think it's just because there's so much turnover there that they can't like find like a aesthetic or a, or a style or something. Yeah. It's just like, oh, let's throw another fucking girl on there with in like a and weird burlesque. bustier and like some fucking fire eater and like some yeah, like fucking like magician. Edgy. Like, what the fuck? Like, like. It's like L.A. It's not fucking like some bad Vegas show. Yeah. You know? It's like they, Burning Man. <laughs> it's not even Burning <laughs> Man. Like, it's just like, I don't get it. Well, fuck them, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Um, they so, need a better editor. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the fucking Stranger, in, I mean, I haven't read it in a while, but the Stranger in Seattle is like totally different. It's like one guy, one person owns it. And I mean, that's probably, the, it's a problem with these like multi- National yeah, what's that guy from The Stranger, Tim? Well, there's Dan Savage, I think, that owns the thing now, or he might oh, have really? bought it or whatever. But Whoa. that paper has been consistently good and funny for years, you know? But yeah. it's like the last one of that. Yeah. You know, all the other weeklies are exactly the same now. I always love The Stranger that they had such a great calendar. You knew what to do every night. Like, there's yeah. all these great options. It's great. And it didn't take itself too seriously either, like... You know, like we're these other, like the LA Weekly, they're whatever, professing to be the experts on yeah everything all the time. Yeah, that a sense of humor it was good. So when you were when you came down here to record those records, was that was that an imp impetus for you to move down here? Uh, not really. I mean, I I moved here halfway through my senior year because the rest of my bandmates had already graduated and they wanted to move down here to play shows, so I just moved and finished high school down here. Right. But right after that, I really didn't like it, so I moved back to Seattle for... You moved to L.A.? I did, yeah. And where did you go to high school then? Redlands High School. Okay. Like east. Yeah. Yeah. In Redlands? In Redlands, yeah. That's pretty far east. Because the singer's mom had a house there I could live in. <laughs> okay. So did you have to like... It's like an hour away, though. Yeah. So you had to drive in for band practice, or where? where did you no, go? we practiced out there too. But then oh. we would always come into LA and p try to play. Where were you playing shows? We at? were just playing parties and stuff. Right. We didn't we didn't know those dudes from all yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, so you didn't even okay. So you got back to Seattle and then Bill Stevenson called. Yeah, you. we went all went back to Seattle and then got signed to CZ and started doing stuff and then met those guys. So you just toured for like years then? Yeah. How long did you guys tour for? On and off for I don't know six years or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then you decided to come down here. Yeah. Right. Well, and then I then that band broke up and I started another band called Lucky Me. Right. And uh yeah, and then I moved here in 2002. What year was Lucky Me? That was like 95 to 98 or something. You guys played I fuck, I saw you guys play in the Tri-Cities. Oh yeah, I bet you did. We in played Eastern there Washington a few times. Yeah. Girl singer. 
Yeah. Yeah. I loved you guys. Yeah. yeah that was cool. crazy. What was her name? Nyleen Schmeichel. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then, so it was like, I think it was like you guys and like, I want to say like seaweed or something. Yeah, maybe that band Loudermilk. Loudermilk. I used to know those guys in high school. I, those guys were like my rival band. Like, oh, really? Yeah, because <laughs> cause they were like kind of like serious musicians and they kind of sounded like Smashing Pumpkins. Kind of, yeah. Well, yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, it was like Davey and then Isaac was one of the guys. And then uh, this guy, uh, Mark, and Mark's younger brother, Joel, and I were in elementary school together. Mm. And Mark plays with, uh, I think he plays with like Jack White now on the Rocket yeah, Tours. Yeah, he does. Um, but I grew up with those guys, and and I had a zine, and I like talked shit about them, and they got mad at me at a show, and then now we're all, now if I see him, it's fine or whatever. But um, what'd you say about him? Oh, just because I was like, well, they were in a, like kind of a Smashing Pumpkins kind of indie rock band, and I was in a band called the Ninja Boners, which is like my hardcore punk Ninja joke Boners, band. Rad. <laughs> so it's like I, it was, I felt like it was my duty. To like you know rile them up or shit on them at the time. Yeah, yeah. They're really good though. They're great. Yeah, they're insane. Yeah, I actually managed them for like four months. Really, louder milk? Yeah, I tried. I convinced them to move to Seattle from Tri Cities. I remember when they moved to Seattle. And yeah, then... and then they got, and then I helped them get signed to American, um, and then they fired me because I sucked as a manager. I didn't care. Right. Yeah. What made you? How did you? So you found them in Tri Cities? Then? Yeah. From playing down there. From playing, yeah. And then I was just like, you guys are really good. You should move out of there. Do you remember Small then? Or Ladybird Unition? I do remember Lady... Did Small come from Ladybird Unition? Small, st- Small was first. Oh. Those were like the dudes that I was like playing baseball with and like skateboarding. That was their older brothers and the, the, they were that band and that was the band that kind of like inspired all of us in Eastern Washington to like start playing music because they yeah. were, they were pretty they had a commercial on MTV that was like a weird like uh environmental like save the earth kind of thing Ladybird yeah uh small oh wow and it's like we're a band from Washington state and huh. you know blah blah and then like they have like the x's for eyes and like the earth blows up oh nice <laughs> we used to see that you know on TV and think that was like they play it like at like 120 minutes or something you know Ladybird Unition was cool too they like very, very refined aesthetic for a band from Tri-Cities. Right. Like, they they were kind of like the makeup or Nation of Ulysses. Or they something. wore the suits and stuff. Yeah. They had another guy that just, just like dressed in a suit that just stood on stage. That's fucking cool. And didn't do anything. He nice. was kind of just like, his. I think the guy's name was Jim. I remember he had on, like he came to a party one time and he had on like a, that black flag uh uh, the uh, Raymond Pettibone with the gun in the cop's mouth and it says make me come faggot and I was oh, like yeah. 13 or something and I was just like whoa what the fuck it's <laughs> fucking mind. crazy you know like, wow. and he would just stand on the stage like wearing a suit and not not moving or anything you know that's cool see that's another city Tri-Cities like where do these kids come from well there's sort of this like the Tri-Cities had this weird thing where we had a connection to Olympia, Washington, because a lot of people went to Evergreen there. And then Olympia has, like, a huge connection to D.C. So it's, like, this weird filter that got down to the Tri-Cities because all those dudes that were in Ladybird Bird Unition and, and Small and stuff, they were all into, like, uh, uh, 
uh, what the fuck is the name of that band? The, the DC band that you, you said makeup, but the band before them, uh, Nation of Ulysses. Yeah. So it's like that kind of thing. And Nation of Ulysses, their whole thing was like, you got to dress cool. Yeah. You know, like that was part of their like, they had the 13 point plan to destroy America and it had all these little rules. You that know, was some strong shit. I loved it, man. And I remember being in my room and like one of them was like, I was reading it and it said like, oh, a kid that. It says like a kid that tells on another kid is a dead kid. That was like oh, the wow. And I and I and my and my dad came in and I was like I said oh he's like what are you reading I was like oh it says you know a kid who tells on another kid's a dead kid and my dad was like yeah that's I believe that yeah. <laughs> makes that sense. sounded cool. <laughs> These days they make you put a wear a helmet and rip it from you and put you on Prozac. Right. Yeah, we didn't have those back then. So at what point then did you decide to come down here? Uh, did, yeah, two, 2002, I moved down here. Were you like disenchanted with like sort of like punk bands or whatever? Because we're getting to, we're getting to what you do now, which is like very far away from what we're talking about. Yeah, you know, musically, but not maybe not maybe mentally. Uh, yeah, I think I was. I wasn't. I wouldn't. I don't know. Disenchanted, I guess, in in some way. I just wasn't interested anymore. I wasn't. Uh, yeah, I just wasn't. I didn't feel like I could really express myself with a with a bass or drums anymore. Right. In terms of those are two instruments that's really hard to express yourself with. Yeah. Those are two instruments that are hard to play by yourself. And I play both those things with just pure muscle, nothing else. Right. So it's not like I'm finessed bass lines everywhere. I'm just like laying waste, and that's all I know how to do with that right. stuff. I mean, those the bass and drums. You kind of almost, if you're practicing, you have to play along to like a record. Yeah. Like, whereas guitar, you can just sit there and make up your shit, you know. But like playing bass or drums yeah, by yourself in a room, yeah, it's totally. just like the weirdest yeah. experience. Yeah. So, so you came down here, and then, you, at what point did you start being like, "Well, I'm gonna like kind of look into electronic music." Had you already been interested in that, or like keyboards or synths, or like how did how did that kind of enter your brain as far as an, an, another instrument? Yeah, it it really started when. Uh, I was in that band Lucky Me and we got signed to Warner Brothers and we they put us up in this studio in Vancouver, BC for two months to record this record, which was a great time. And um, we recorded with this producer named Dave Ogilvie. He produced some of the first Nine Inch Nails records. So I, I we were there for two months and I laid down my bass stuff and then I had nothing to do. So I saw all this gear around, all these computers and stuff. So I was like, can I learn this stuff while everyone's tracking their guitars and vocals. So I learned it pretty quick and then I started adding little bits on that record, just make little, little loops and stuff. And that's really how I st it started. And, and that stuff ended up on the record? Yeah. And you guys weren't even like planning on that at all at the first? No. That's awesome. I just had so much time, you know, I just <laughs> right. record all this pouring water in buckets and stuff and put little hi-hats in it and then layered on top of the guitar just because I was bored, but it turned out killer. That's great. Yeah. And then what happened, what happened with Lucky Me, though? Like, it just the like, major label, like, fucking yeah, weirdness? Just, yeah, and they never put the record out. They just shelved it? Yeah. They paid the money to, like, have you guys record yeah, it for two months? Yeah, something like $300,000 they put into it. That's and, back in those days, you yeah. know? And then they said, this record is too creative, and they didn't <laughs> want to put it out. <laughs> <laughs> pretty rad did the record ever come out at all like is i it... think nylene may have l released it a couple years ago or something right you don't you don't really keep in touch with those guys or i do a bit yeah. but 
Yeah, I didn't. I don't know. I can't remember what the deal with what she did with it was. Right. You don't care. Not really. Yeah. I mean, no one else cared. I mean, no one knew who we were. But you don't care that like you should get like some royalties or something if the, if there's a record version of it out there. <laughs> no, because it's probably ten dollars <laughs> if anything. I don't know. It might be more. Yeah. You never know these days. Right. You know. I, it's hard to tell. Yeah, we could be really big in Hong Kong or something. People get weird with that shit, though. You know, they they want their they want their peace. Yeah, know? I don't I don't care. Yeah, yeah, I really don't. I'm with you. Yeah. So you're doing the synth- synthesizer stuff, and it's like it's like tell me about what that is because I don't understand that stuff that well. But a lot of times I see dudes with like little wires plugged into patch bays and things like that yeah that's a modular modular synth synth, right yeah that's really a kind of a big thing right now yeah and and now there's like people that like i mean there's people that are into everything now because the internet but like there's like clubs and guys that are building these things and you know you collect them and you can is that what you're using or is that what you were getting into no i don't i don't do any modular stuff um i don't have the patience for it right but yeah it's super cool but I, I am really into like analog synthesis, but it isn't modular. Uh-huh. What's so, the difference? So modular is when you're you're creating custom patches with filters and oscillators and things and you really come up with your own sound. Um and you do that through the patch bay. Whereas analog synthesis is this same principle, it's analog, it's not digital, but you're you're using a more consumer based uh, synthesizer with with very easy to understand knobs on it right right yeah so you get down here you're you're playing you're using you started to get interested in this kind of music or this instrumentation right mm-hmm. and you came to la and you were thinking i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do like more of an electronic music or well i actually like i uh i wrote this film called dandelion with my friend in seattle um and uh, it ended up doing really good. It went to Sundance, winning some awards. It went to a bunch of festivals around the world and winning a lot of stuff. And I scored that film, and that was the first thing I ever scored. So from that film, I really got interested in scoring, so that's why I really moved to L.A. Right. Um, with my then-wife, Megan, mm-hmm. and her, like, a little baby, Vinka. Right. And she wanted to study um, shoe design. So we just moved down here. And then what was your first gigs like doing? You wanted to do music for film or TV or whatever. And, yeah. And how did you find your way into to that? Well, the, I think the first thing that happened is that I, I met this dude, Dan. No, it's not Dan. Fuck, I can't remember his name. But anyway, he directed the Blair Witch Project. Okay. So somehow I, I met him right when I moved down here. Yeah. And, oh, I know what happened. I got hired to uh, be a driver on the set for his new film. And I knew, you know, I moved down here to score stuff. So I would be sitting in the van all the time while they're filming. So I had my laptop in the van and I would watch them film. And I wrote music the whole time thinking when this is, when, it, when the production's done, I'm going to show him the music that I wrote while watching him film for two months. And so that happened. I showed him the film and he hired me to score the movie. That's great. That's yeah, so, it it's so cool. interesting because like just no one would think to do that as far as, I mean, you people score the film after it's done and they see it, 
but just like actually watching them film yeah. it and writing the music as that's going along. And I don't really think what I was visually seeing affected the music that much. Right. I just was bored and very hungry to do it. Did you end up? Did he end up using the stuff that you that you wrote while while it was yeah, being filmed? Yeah, all of the stuff I wrote in the van. On my he didn't laptop. make you redo the whole thing, or well, like, I mean, I adjusted it here right. and there for stuff, but it was yeah, it was the bulk of that stuff. And what film was that? It was actually a TV series called The Strand, and oh, okay. it was about the Venice Boardwalk. Right, right. The Strand, yeah. Because I because you've done like scoring on like a lot of like darker like horror film sort of stuff yeah and, and 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 what's what's the what's the mood for that as opposed to like well because you've done like you did like 90210 too right yeah the newer version the new, of that the new version so. like 100 episodes of it. <laughs> you scored 100 episodes of 90210 roughly yeah there were 100 episodes of there the were new, yeah it's syndicated now which is cool oh that's great right yeah did, okay here's a question for you then when you score something like a tv show now, do you get paid every time they play the TV show, or is it just like, because if you're an actor and it goes into syndication, that's like the whole enchilada there. Yeah, you get paid every time it plays. Right. Yeah. For music. For music, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Totally. I was always wondering that. Yeah. So, tell me the difference between like scoring for 90210 and then versus like Midnight Meat Train or something like that. I mean, it's not, the process really isn't any different. Right. Because you basically have a handful of producers. They hire you for your style, you know, so there's there's some faith there to begin with. But then eventually you have to you have to um answer to, you know, all their notes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you go down to set for like nine or two and oh like no, it, it doesn't I never, matter. I never did. No. Right. No. They just tell you like this is what do they tell you like we're looking for a certain genre or like or like we we like these kinds of songs and, and and make them sound like that or well they i guess how i did the i did that show with uh Megan's brother Justin Justin Hosford so we sent a demo into we someone knew the producer so we sent a demo to her before they started filming the first episodes and she really liked our music and just hired us we just got super lucky so right. she just when they started doing the episodes and they were done, she just liked our style and just let us do whatever we wanted. And you were doing it like every day, like it's a full-time gig. Well, I think it was like uh, six months a year or something yeah. for five, four years. So it was pretty hardcore. Like it was like you, we'd have to, between him and I, we'd have to write like 20 pieces of music a week. Right. Yeah. And did did you find it like creative or? Yeah, totally. It was amazing yeah. because yeah. they didn't really question us much. They were just like, "Do your thing." So because it's all it's all like mood music and stuff. There's no words in there, so it's no, not like, yeah. yeah, no words. So yeah. yeah, you just. I mean, it was great because I learned so much and had the money to buy the equipment that I needed and just really push myself. I used it as a way to really push myself musically. And and what kind of like for for someone who's trying to do scoring or 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 just music for film or video game like what like what kind of setup were you guys using in, as your studio for that? Um, but something just really easy. You just a, a laptop or some type of computer, some good analog synthesizers, uh, maybe some drums mic'd up. Because you just do it bit by bit. It's like when you were a kid and you were four-tracking or whatever. Mm -hmm. you're, just, you're just layering stuff. You're just building it all up. Yeah. 
and then you create templates and then you once you get a few seasons into the show you have these templates and you you just plug stuff in it becomes very easy at that point right because by that time you've written like 500 pieces of music and you're like and you can reuse it you know oh that thing i used from the two episodes ago would work perfect here you pull up that project and adjust it a little bit and you're done so are they giving you like uh, the visuals then to to write to or yeah they okay. send you the done the done episode right and they say like i mean and then you have a meeting and you watch it together and they say put music here here and you have an all time code out and you right. just plug it in wow yeah that's crazy yeah it's a cool job <laughs> Good work, it, and and then for film, is it the same process too, or or is or is there generally like a when a, when a director comes to you, do they do they have like a m- more over overall arcing kind of idea of what the vibe is? Yeah, because on that stuff, um, they usually use temp music. With the editor will use music the whole time they're putting the cut together for the film. And that stuff is usually chosen by the director because the director's sitting there with the editor, so they're like, we want this vibe here and here. And they use all this previous music from other composers. So when you get the film, you totally know what, what they want from what they used, and then you just start replacing it. Right. Yeah. Do they ever, like, do they ever say, we want a song that sounds like this hit song, but just enough so that we don't get sued? It happened like that a lot in TV. Yeah. Yeah. But not in film. Right. Because they usually have the budgets to get what they want or whatever, at least the ones I've worked on. Right. But in TV all the time, because, you know, on those shows there's like 10 songs from other bands and they can't afford them all, so you have to like kind of fake it on some (laughs) of it, which is my least favorite thing to do. I hate it. Yeah, I would imagine that's kind of, it's got to be kind of a weird, uh, because I've done it too. In, in, in a smaller scale, like for stuff for, uh, I can't remember, it was like some uh, Sex in the City thing. They wanted like songs that sounded like 80s hits because it was taking place when they were younger or something. Like, yeah. Like 99 Red Balloons or something, but like not enough so that. It's kind of a nice exercise, I guess, as a musician to see if you can do it, you know? It's kind of a little shitty though. Yeah. Like, shitty feeling. Yeah. It's kind of just like. It's just a bummer that yeah. they can't just get the song and pay the person that wrote the song, or like let's just steal this person's idea and <laughs> make it crappier. Yeah. <clears throat> so beyond that, though, I mean, you 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 do your own stuff, a lot of your own stuff too, not just for higher stuff, but I mean, you 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 combine a lot of like visual art and music, you know. And and do you want to talk about? I mean, it's like dance. And actual art pieces and video and, you know, yeah, it's more of a performance art sort of thing as opposed to, like, a, 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 the classic idea of, like, a band or whatever. Right. Like, we Are the World, for example. Like, can you tell us, like, what what that was about or what that is? Uh, yeah, We Are the World was a, was a band, I guess. I don't know. I wasn't really a band, but it was... Well, that's what I'm saying. It's not really a band. Yeah, it was just two dancers, Ryan Heffington and Nina McNeely, and then Megan Gold and myself. And when Megan and I did the music, those dudes danced and just came up with costumes and performance uh, approaches. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, there, it's hard to talk about because there really wasn't an, an intent behind it. Right. It just was a group of friends coming together, and that was the result. Like, we weren't, we didn't set out to go... 
we want to look like this or sound like this and and express this message in our shows or anything like that. It was just sort of very organic and it just happened. Right. Yeah. I was always curious about you guys though because I, I ran into you guys I think one night like at the liquor store or something in Echo Park and you guys were on, I don't remember who it was. It was either you or Megan or Ryan, somebody, but uh, you guys were on your way to the band practice and you guys practiced on like uh, Echo Park Avenue. Yeah, we had a shoe store there and we practiced in there. Yeah, and I just was like <laughs> having seen you guys and having seen like just how different the idea of it is and the dancers and, and you know, I was just like, God, what the fuck is band practice like yeah, for those guys? Like, totally. <laughs> how did you guys work? Like, how did you guys work that out? Like, were they dancing while you were Yeah, practicing? we were just... Megan That's and I so had been, would would work on the music, you know, between shows and come up with new stuff. Sure. And then we would just, I mean, really, it just consisted of us emailing the music to them. They'd sort of get an idea for, of it, if we had a new piece to figure out for the show. And then they would come together. And we wouldn't even, I think Megan would just sing without a mic and I would just play on my legs or something. Uh-huh. And like then, hitting your legs? Or, I can't really remember. I had drum pads and I'd play them. Mm -hmm. But you know, they would. We would just play the play the song in the in the shoe store, and they would figure out what they're going to do, where the positioning of everything. Mm -hmm. And that's really what band practice was. But it was about positioning and what we're going to do for the show, what we're going to wear, right? Blah blah blah. Because Megan and I already knew how to play it. It was a matter of what are they going to do in the context of us. And did you, when you would play shows though, would would you guys play more than, would you play the same song more than once at different shows or whatever? Or, oh yeah, or we was, would okay. play the same songs right. all the time. But every show, every show or every band practice was kind of like a rehearsal for a show as opposed to like, let's just like keep playing the songs and get better at them. And Yeah, we yeah. never, we never had those types of band practices. Right. It was always like the night or two before the show, what are we going to do for this show? It's like the dress rehearsal. Exactly. For the, for the play. They were dress rehearsals. <laughs> yeah. It, I, I love it. I just like, I was, I remember seeing you guys and I just like walking away and I was just like, oh yeah, they're going, and I'm going to band practice. They're going to band. Like, yeah. What are those guys do? What the do? fuck <laughs> is their band practice? Because like, I would have a hard, I would just, I think if I, if I was playing in a band and there was this like two people dancing the whole time, I just like would have such a hard time keeping a straight face, you know? It's, yeah. It was especially just Ryan, you know? Luckily we had masks on. That's right. You guys all had masks on too. Yeah. And so then from there, and then this thing, Double Diamond Sunbody, can you tell us what the impetus was for that? And what were you trying to do there that you hadn't done before? Uh, well, I that how that came about really is that I got super sick and I got this thing called Guillain-Barre and uh, basically I became paralyzed and I was in the hospital for two months, unable to walk or do anything. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it's sort of transformed my mind in a little bit. I don't know how to other, put it other than that. But when I got out and I got well and I could walk again, which took about six months, I, I sort of just started making these films based on that experience and where, where it sort of brought my heart and mind. Um, and as I was making these films, they were like five, seven, ten minutes long, I started to score them. And then I was like, well, I should just play these films live and score them live. Mm -hmm. 
And so I did one show, and it was just so amazing, such a great feeling. Where was it at? It was at my friend's art studio, Mark Breslin. Mm -hmm. And um, people really liked it, and then I just started doing it more. Um, and now, yeah, it's going really good. I'm going to do a solo show at this gallery downtown called Mama Gallery mm -hmm. in July. Mm-hmm because I've been doing a lot of uh, like video installations and stuff, so they asked me to do a solo show. It's a huge, like, 4,000-square-foot place, so I have to fill that up somehow. Right. Which is kind of nerve-wracking, but... Yeah, we'll be there. Yeah, it'll be cool. Jess and I'll come. Oh, that'll make it better. <laughs> Mommy and Daddy. <laughs> is, that, is, is that what that Tom the Monster thing is from? Yeah. 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 So you saw a picture of the installation. I did, yeah, yeah. With the like, a, it's like a dog mouth and like a chainsaw. Yeah, is that from the show that's coming up, or this is from? It was from. That was from a past group show, right? Yeah. And it, was that your work that you did? You do the installation, or did you do the music with the headphones, or did you do both of those? I did both. Yeah. Okay. So like, I was, I was playing shows for like six months where I had two screens, and I would play about six different films, but I would blend them all together and then do the music live right and then someone from mama gallery saw that and asked me to be part of a group show which then pushed me to go oh sh how can i manifest this in a gallery situation so then i took one of those videos and then took aspects of the video such as the chainsaw and things like that and manifested them in a 3d and had the video going so these things would come out of the video and then be part of Right. The installation. Where did you learn the video stuff? Did you do self-taught? Yeah, self-taught. Actually, back to that that uh, Blair Witch Project thing, The Strand. Right. I eventually ended up being the editor editor on that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I taught myself then. It's interesting because it's like you became an editor on a film that you hadn't edited or a TV show that you hadn't edited before and you also became like the the scorer the what do you call it scorer composer composer yeah for a TV show when you hadn't done that before either just yeah. by sending in a demo yeah it's, it's just I mean it, it's crazy that it worked out yeah, that way weird and then you just well I guess just being open to the idea of doing it yeah so that's what I was gonna ask what what's the what's that girl that's in that that lingerie football thing. She's an Australian. I don't know her name, but she's an Australian. Oh, so you watched the video. Yeah, yeah, I watched it because, yeah, I watched it. Yeah. I was going to interview you. She's, a, um, she's an Australian football player. Right. She's burly, huh? She's insane because, well, because I, so I don't know, this thing, lingerie football, I guess it's a real thing. I'd, I'd heard people mention it before. Yeah. But I never really bothered Yeah, you to hear check it, it out. and you're just like, what a joke. But you watch it, they're raging. It's a real thing. Yeah. They're like really they're... tackling each other. Yeah. Hard. And this woman's like, she's really into it. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find that? <laughs> How did you find that footage? I mean, that's kind of the idea behind Double Diamond Sunbody is that I'm finding footage online and downloading it and then re editing it and making whole new stories out of it. Right. Yeah sort of commentary on human behavior right based on youtube videos right thus far jet i mean we have the, uh some of the zigzags videos are are just found footage and i just love found footage compilation stuff yeah you know, the, the, that that style i don't know why but 
I think just because there's so much different things going on and they bring out so many different emotions or like uh, memories or whatever, you know, especially we, our stuff is just always, we always find like weird home videos of like Heshers or whatever, you know, Yeah. just cause I grew up with those guys and, that, and I just remember that, that feeling. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And you re-edit it. <laughs> you edit it together and, and it's cheaper yeah. than actually shooting something. Yeah, so all that stuff in Tom the Monster is the stuff I found and then redid it. And then animated over it. And then put narration or, you know, subtitles where you're retelling the story. Right. Well, we'll put like a link or something so so someone can, people can watch it or whatever. Cool. <laughs> I really liked it. Um, we went to that... Um, uh, lead Albuquerque show a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't remember what was it called. It's called Twenty Twenty Accelerando. But that's but that's a film though, no? Or that's a that's a film. But yeah, that I mean, you're talking about the thing at USC, right? No, I'm talking about the oh. thing that was on. Uh, I want at the gallery, the and Cone Gallery. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was a diff- That was a different show of hers. Right. Yeah. But you also worked with her, and maybe in the past, how did how did that collaboration come together? Because and then you can tell us what that twenty twenty accelerando is, because that's a film. Yeah, that's a film, and basically that collaboration came about from her seeing a double diamond sun body show, and saying I have. She said I have this show coming up at USC, and I wrote this text. I've been writing this text over the last five years or whatever. And I'd love it if you made you if I gave you the text and you made a film based on the text. So yeah, I did it, and we we went to Hawaii and filmed a bunch of stuff. That stuff has maybe a little bit of found footage in it, but it's like ninety five percent stuff we filmed. Mm-hmm. And so I made like a half an hour of film based on the text that she wrote, and then um, and then we did, had a big show at USC at the Fisher Museum and had, did some of the music live, the vocals live. Yeah. That. So have you kind of felt like you've sort of settled into this this idea of like I can now do the visual and the music together like as opposed to like I'm going to do one or the other, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Because it's like for for me for instance it's like I write all the music, record the songs and then go back later and think oh, we should make a music video for this one, or we'll have time to do, like, three music videos or whatever for the record. Yeah. As opposed to thinking about them as one. As one, yeah. Piece. Yeah, I've, I really am excited about that now, just thinking that uh, I I want to tell a story about something. I don't I don't necessarily need music. I mean, it accentuates what I'm doing. But I, it's nice feeling now to not be solely dependent on it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, for instance, the show in July that I'm doing, the solo show at Mama, I'm going to do three performances leading up to the show, um, three live performances, and then I'm going to take aspects of those performances and make sculptures and prints and things from from that. So... It's so, all sort of working together. Yeah, all these things are all the all of these styles of art or whatever you want to call them are all feeding into each other and in, inspiring other yeah processes that come out of them. Yeah, totally. So it's more of like just a a, a wave almost a, 
and, flow. And the cool thing is that it's still all coming from music. Like, I just started the first performance that I'm going to do for that show, started creating it, and it it's all coming from a really nice drone I made. And that drone is telling me what the visual should be and what the whole story is, really. Right. Which is cool. And so... Uh, so now you've moved on to that and, and that's what you're kind of focusing on. I mean, do you still have like a daily like work schedule for like other pro for other people that are you're for hire or are you kind of just focusing now on your own stuff? I'm kind of just focusing on, on my own stuff. I yeah. do do stuff here and there, produce some songs for other people and stuff like that. Yeah, I was going to ask, so, you, you, so someone can come to you and like kind of have you produce a, a record for them or... Yeah, yeah. And yeah. What bands have you like? Who have you worked with in that regard? Not, not a lot. Still, kind of a lot of singer songwriter type stuff. Right. Um, you have your own studio then to do that in. Yeah. 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 Cool. Downtown. Nice. Yeah. So, what's the day to day like then? Right now, I'm just. Uh, I have so much to do for this show that I'm just very disciplined, <laughs> waking up and working. Right, you know, all day on this stuff. Is it hard to get up? Is it hard to get started on it? Like when when you're, you know, it's like as a writer or something like that. It's always hard to like get the get the pen going, but like to turn the computer on and to like power up all the equipment. Mm, not really. No. I'm pretty excited about it. You are. Yeah, but I think it's really a weird thing about human nature that isn't it weird that you perform so well when people tell you what to do. But if when you're telling yourself what to do, it's a whole different program. Right. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's almost Why like is that. Well, I think it's like maybe because when you when it's just yourself, you have endless possibilities. Yeah. And when you have someone telling you something specific and you have like maybe boundaries to work within, it's easier to like focus. Yeah. And I feel like I feel like for me, like, like I got hired to write like a children's record and that was really easy to do even though I don't like listen to fucking children's music or know anything about that, it was just really easy to do to be like, oh, we need a song about um, chocolate chip cookies or whatever. And it's like, okay, it's really easy to focus when you have like that, that idea of like one thing that you need to like do. Mm -hmm. Whereas when it's just like creating, like you're like, I just want to create. It's endless though. Yeah. And, and nothing ever feels right but if someone says like well you got to do this thing this way and you're like well i don't really want to but that's how it has to be it's going to be easier maybe yeah you just kind of got to show up for yourself huh right yeah i don't know i mean i think we're all still figuring that out yeah i i think i think it was nick cave or something i was re reading this interview the other day but i can't really remember who it was i think it was him and they were like because i love his scores yeah they're so he's one of my favorite yeah. composers uh, jesse that. james yeah. Movies. And so the, uh, the, good. oh God, what's the one I always forget the fucking name and I always have to think of it. The proposition. proposition. Yeah. Yeah. The score on that's amazing. So good. Yeah. But they were asking him, they were like, where do you find, because he, he produces so much work. They're like, how do you find all the inspiration to do all this? And he goes, I don't know where I find it, but I guarantee I'll be sitting at my desk when it comes. Right. I thought that was such a powerful statement because it's like, you just have to show up. You know, if you show up, it'll it'll happen. Right. It's that idea of if you're an artist or a painter or something, it's like you, even if you don't have an idea, you go down there and you start 
fucking sharpening pencils or you start yeah, and cleaning the brushes. Or, rolling. It's the same for me. It's like, oh, I just start changing, like I'll change the guitar strings or like yeah. rearrange the pedal board or, you know, start cleaning shit or whatever. And then, and then, and then you get bored of fucking cleaning stuff and you just have to write. Something. Yeah. You're like, what am I? I'm made readjusting my fucking studio again. <laughs> exactly. Well, before we wrap it up, I want to ask you one last thing is, um, about your daughter who I've met a few times and is really sweet and funny. And is she doing like comedy stuff and acting stuff now or what's she doing? Um, not really. I mean, no? she's just doing a bit of commercial work. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, like smiling in a shoe campaign or something. Right. I swear to God, Jess, every time some commercial comes on, Jess is like, I think that's Vinca. And I'm like, I don't think that's her. <laughs> Yeah, but she has a few that no, are on I know she does. all the time. So we always look for her whenever there's like kids on a commercial or something like that. Yeah, I'm just watching her bank account grow. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Then they can they can put it in there for college. Do you take her to auditions and stuff? Sometimes, yeah. How's that? What's that like? It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've been because I, I go on commercial all the time, and when I do see that there's like a a, a commercial with a bunch of kids in it, it's always like. It's a little bit more fun in the room just because it's always some weird job, too. Yeah, and their parents are there. All <laughs> the parents are there. And that's just like they got the three kids that are all doing the commercials, and they're yeah. like, spent, and the, the, the mom or the dad has their, that's their whole day is to like take these kids around yeah. Hollywood and like arrange their schedule before soccer practice. And yeah, it's no more soccer mom, it's commercial mom. It's crazy. Well, it's, here it is. Yeah. You know, I'm sure everywhere else it's not like that, but. Yeah. It's cool, too. They can't use their money until they're 18. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's like huh. a law. Huh. Yeah. So they have to put it in, like, a certain account? Some, some like, uh, what is it called? Escrow type thing. They can't use any of it? I think maybe, like, 5% of it or oh, something. That's pretty good. Yeah. You get a national commercial. <laughs> yeah. You get your 5%. She's always like, I'm so happy I have my, my, my money for college, and I'm just like, don't waste it on college. Yeah, right. Jesus, you gotta get like a, get her a guitar or something, or sixty grand in debt for like whatever. Well, it, I mean, if if uh, Bernie Sanders wins, then she can just like spend that money however she wants and just go to college for free. Because Bernie's gonna pay for our, everyone's college. Huh? Uh -huh. Wow, great. <laughs> we can be thirty trillion dollars in debt. <laughs> I wonder what Henry Rollins thinks about that. I'm sure he probably likes it. Yeah, I bet he, <laughs> he's feeling the burn. He's probably going to vote for Hillary. You think so? It wouldn't surprise me. I'll ask him. Yeah. Not me. I would expect him to vote for Trump, but he would never do that. No? No. Who are you voting for? Can I ask you? Trump. You are? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still undecided. Yeah. he's. I think he, he has a really bad rap because people are like, oh, he's racist, he's sexist, he's all these things. But if you really listen to what he says, he's not any of those things. He's uh -huh. actually the opposite. Uh -huh. And he actually has the best interest of everyone in America in mind because he is not bought off by right. lobbyists and donors at all. Right. I mean, when is the last time a major politician could say that? 50 years more? No, I never. Mean, yeah, you know? yeah. So, like, it's a pretty amazing time, man. It's fascinating. I mean, I, I haven't been this interested just in politics in a while it's just yeah, as far as following either. the race or whatever why you know? would you be because you, if you know that all these people are paid off you don't listen to a damn thing well that's why saying. i find hillary so boring because it's just like it's the same old bullshit you know yeah, it's just she is just a nightmare yeah 
but then you get someone i mean i respect bernie too but like i don't know like you know trump's up there saying shit that no one would ever say (laughs) they would be done in a day and something about him he's like the train that has no brakes man it's fascinating I'll, i'll give him that i also feel like i mean i also feel like if you vote for him it's like why not let the clown run around and pour gasoline on the fire <laughs> while he's yeah while we all just go down i think he'd actually put the fire out you think so yeah man if you look listen to the shit he says it's like he's not a warmonger he has disagreed with any war we've gotten into in the last 10 years which is about five of them he's on record disagreeing with all of them he says that he wants to get along with putin which is amazing why wouldn't you i mean you're two superpowers let's get along and that's what he's saying. So he's he's very much about peace, man, and about putting out the war that all these globalists and bankers are trying to start around the world. Yeah. Man, this interview really went totally different than yeah. I thought it was going <laughs> But I'm with you, man. I respect everybody's, like, opinion as far. I mean, my, my parents are, I, I think my dad's totally for Trump, and I, he thinks he's going to win, and, you know, yeah. I don't know. It's like, it's hard, it's hard to tell. It's still so early, but there's just so much fucking shit going on with it. I mean, look, look at what he did in the last two days. He said, two days ago, he said. he's going to kill Muslims with pig's blood covered bullets. No, that, <laughs> yeah, that's a different thing. But he said, um, he called out the Bushes on 9-11. He said, you're lying. You're you're part of this thing. He demanded that the government release the 28 pages that they haven't released about what happened on 9-11, mm-hmm. which is the important stuff about how it really happened. I mean, he's a presidential candidate saying that, who, and he's in the lead. That's insane. And then he says two days later, if I become president, I'll audit the Fed, which right. is also fucking insane. Right. I mean, anyone else would be done or dead by now. By just those two things alone. I, I, I just don't know if he's going to follow through on it, though. Or yeah, just, yeah, you don't know. He, he, Neither he's do just I. saying shit also to get, like, press. You know, he's, 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 he's got good PR. You know, he knows what he's doing. He's, he's been the host yeah. of a fucking reality yeah, show. Yeah, you so, really you don't know. know if he's going to follow through yeah, on he's, it. Yeah, he's, he he's just say, I think he's saying anything just to get, like, attention, you know? Could be, but he yeah. could be real. He could be for real. You don't know. You don't know. I call him the Matrix Smasher. The ma- he's smashing the Matrix. <laughs> Well, we're going to see what happens. He's doing it like a cowboy, too. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Cool. I like it. Well, thanks for being on the show, Robbie. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Well, that went in a different direction than I thought we were going to go into. It's not much of a political show, really, but... Uh, this is a very fascinating, fascinating time to be watching politics. A hilarious time, sometimes a sad time, sometimes a depressing time. But overall, very entertaining time. I, I like to watch Real Time with Bill Maher. I like to watch Gold Rush. I like to watch uh, Better Call Saul. And then I like to watch the Republican debates. As always, I want to thank Jessica Hunley for producing the show. Adam Wade is our engineer. And thanks to you guys for listening. This has been Jed Banger's Ball. I'll see you next week.
Peace.